Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is from Jeremiah chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives, In truth, in justice, in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Congregation of our Lord, as the people of God goes, so also the nations go. When the church's witness is confused and clouded by sin, the nations wander. Confession of sin, therefore, and return to the Lord is necessary not only for the health and the life of God's people, but for the life of the whole world. Now, we will have our silent confession of sin first, since this is how I laid it out, not uh, being as familiar with your liturgy. So we'll have the silent confession first, and then we will have our corporate confession together. So let us go before our God and confess our sins in full confidence of his grace and mercy. our time of uh, studying God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures inspired by your Holy Spirit. Feed us with new words of life that we might be fully equipped to do your good pleasure. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Whose name do you bear, and how do you bear it? What's in a name? Well, my name is Christopher, and your, your name may be Bill or Joe or Mary, and that's the name your parents gave you. But what name did God give you? That name which God gave you is even more important. We were baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We bear the name of Jesus Christ, and so we are called Christians. Now, what would you think if you were applying for a new job? And as you got ready for your interview, someone gave you this advice. Make sure you don't tell anyone there that you're a Christian. If you want this job, and if you want a chance at being promoted, don't tell anyone that you're a Christian. What would you think of this kind of advice? Well, I want you to keep that question in your minds as we take a very quick jaunt today through the book of Esther. Now, I'm sure most of you are pretty familiar with the story of Esther, but just to get our bearings, let's review our setting. Now, I'm leaving out a lot of details, but perhaps you will be reminded of them as we go through this. 
The book opens with a feast at which Ahasuerus, king of Persia, deposes Queen Vashti for public insubordination. With Vashti deposed, now a new queen is needed. And to find her, the king will summon maidens from across the whole empire, from India to Africa, to his palace. It's like a Cinderella story of epic proportions, with so many fair maidens hoping to win the favor of the king. And of course, our heroine, Esther, also called Hadassah, the cousin of Mordecai the Jew, is chosen from among all the maidens and crowned queen, as we heard. But soon we will learn that not is all well in the land. The king appoints a power-hungry and vindictive man to be his chief counselor. And so we learn that not only does the king need a new queen in this story, but a new chief counselor as well. And so our stage is set. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. But while God hides his face in the book, we will see that his work of providence can be clearly perceived throughout the whole. There are many themes in the book of Esther that we could explore. We could consider how the court of the king is described in the language of Yahweh's temple and what that could mean. We could talk about how Esther's elevation to queen and her defeat of Haman is a reversal of the failure of King Saul. We could examine the much maligned character of Ahasuerus and reconsider whether he is as great of an idiot as many people think. But today, I want to focus on one of the primary themes of the book, the theme of witness before the nations. Now, as we read, Esther 2 introduces Mordecai and Esther to us. In your English versions, the opening phrase of the verse says something like, this is Esther 2, verse 5, will say something like, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. And that's a good, smooth, literate English translation. It is not how the Hebrew text reads. In Hebrew, the section opens with the words, Ish Yehudi, a man, a Judean, was in Susa, the citadel, and his name was Mordecai. The phrase is emphatic, a man, a Judean. This is important because this is one of only two places in the whole Bible where this phrase is found. The author wants to make an impact with this introduction. So we should probably read it with all the dramatic flair that we would if we were introducing some larger-than-life character from history. We might speak of someone like Davy Crockett, the man, the legend. Well, here we have the man, the Judean. Perhaps because of this introduction, Jewish rabbis often portrayed Mordecai as the ideal Jew, a sterling specimen of his people and a shining example of how all Jews ought to behave. To bolster Mordecai's prestige even further, later scribes composed additional materials for the book, recounting a prophetic vision that Mordecai has to warn him of impending danger for his people. However, the scripture gives us a rather different picture. To be sure, the book of Esther does present Mordecai as a fitting representative for his entire nation. 
but Mordecai doesn't represent Judah only in positive ways. Just as Judah rebelled against God and failed in their calling to be a royal priesthood to the nations, Mordecai will exemplify that failure. But then he will also serve as an example of one who receives mercy from God, whom God lifts up out of death, just as Yahweh saves and redeems his people. Mordecai's given family tree immediately alerts us that something is up. He is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now I understand Pastor Hemeke has just begun his series in 1 Samuel with you, so you'll probably hear more about Kish, and if he continues into 2 Samuel, you'll probably hear about Shimei. But for now, all you need to know is that Kish was the father of King Saul, the first king of Israel, who persecuted David, God's anointed. Shimei was a relative of King Saul, and he cursed David and was later executed by David's son, Solomon. Now, this question, questionable lineage makes us wonder, will Mordecai serve the house of David as a true Judean, a true man of Judah? We learn also that Mordecai is one of the exiles carried away by Nebuchadnezzar with Jeconiah, king of Judah, in 597 BC. He's probably the same Mordecai mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah, among the exiles who returned to the land under the decree of Cyrus. That places the events of Esther in the reign of Darius, king of Persia, who finally authorized the completion of the second temple in Jerusalem. And to get Darius's approval for the final phase of rebuilding the temple, messengers traveled back and forth between Jerusalem and Darius, who was probably in Susa. Sometime during or after this, Mordecai settled in the Persian capital of Susa. We find that he is some kind of official in the citadel, a servant of the king who sits in the gate. So we can't tell for sure, but it is at least possible and perhaps likely that Mordecai, known so emphatically in the book of Esther as the Judean, that he was one of the emissaries from Jerusalem to Darius, and that he remained in the Persian citadel as an ambassador for Judea. Now, it's not my purpose in this sermon to make a historical case that the Darius of Ezra and Nehemiah is the King Ahasuerus of Esther, but if you are interested in that, feel free to talk to me afterwards. So Mordecai and Esther are introduced in our story when the king is looking for a suitable queen. And he's issued a decree that all the maidens from all over the empire should be brought to the palace. Now we sometimes have the impression of Esther, along with countless young women being ripped from their homes against their will and forced into the harem of the king of Persia. And this probably originated again with Jewish rabbinic commentators, one of whom said that fathers hid their daughters when the king's men came. But nothing could be further from the truth. Esther entered the contest for the crown voluntarily and with the full approval of Mordecai. Now, how do we know that? Well, remember that the decree was for young virgins to be gathered from all the provinces of the Persian Empire. That's provinces from 
India to Africa, and we know from chapter one that there are 127 provinces. One estimate for the population of the Persian Empire at that time was 30 million people. Now, I did some math. It was very stressful. <laughs> but with that population, if we count as a household 20 people, let's suppose a household is 20 people, which is a very generous number for a household, right? And one out of every 100 households has one maiden selected as a candidate. That would produce a harem of 15,000 women. And if a Hazar is interviewed, a different maiden every night without taking any breaks, he would be at it for over 41 years. Now that's an impossible situation. This idea that Persian guards went door to door snatching girls against their will is a complete fantasy. Earlier, I called Esther's accession the original epic Cinderella story. And the setup really is much more like that. Maidens from around the empire with stars in their eyes and dazzled by the prospect of not only living in the palace, but perhaps becoming queen, not only willingly, but eagerly registered their names into this royal contest. Esther was among them. Now this is made even more clear by Mordecai's command to her, do not make known to anyone your people or kindred. In other words, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, and don't tell anyone you're my cousin. Now why is this, why does he give this command? Is it dangerous to be a Jew in the Persian Empire? Well, no, it's not. Mordecai, the Jew, emphatically the man, the Jew himself, is a high official in the king's court. Why does he tell Esther to hide her people and her family? It can only be so that she will have a better chance at advancement. Even if it isn't dangerous to be a Jew, the Persians still might not want a Jewess to be their queen. And if they caught wind of the fact that she was a Jew and a relation of Mordecai, she could be out of the contest. Mordecai wants that influence in court that Esther could provide. Perhaps we can understand or even sympathize with Mordecai and his thinking. Wouldn't it be nice if we could gain some influence with our government that we could call on at will, especially now? What would it be like to have real influence in the rule of the nation? Maybe we could position someone up there no one even knows about so that when we exert that influence, nobody has to know. For Mordecai, as an official representative of the Jews in the Persian capital, it might be nice to have the ear of the king. It could be advantageous if the man of Judah could influence the policy of the empire without anyone even knowing. And now in Esther, he sees his opportunity, but only if she wins the crown, and so the command. And Esther does win the crown, but at what cost? To gain her position, she has sacrificed her witness before the nations as a follower and worshiper of Yahweh. She's not like a Daniel, or like Daniel's three friends who refused the table of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, not yet. Still, 
It is interesting that Ahasuerus is the first one to benefit from this arrangement of having a Jewish queen. Mordecai discovers an assassination plot and the king, uh, to kill the king and, and foils it by informing his cousin, Esther. Now this is the perfect chance to witness. Esther informs the king in the name of Mordecai. And now is the time for Esther to tell the king that he owes his life to none other than Esther's cousin, the Jew. But it is easier to use covert influence than to be an open witness. Esther still does not reveal that she is Mordecai's cousin. If she had, perhaps the next chain of events never would have happened. Mordecai's service goes unnoticed, and instead, a man named Haman, the Agagite, is elevated to the office of chief counselor instead. Uh-oh. Now, if we remember our story of Saul, and you will get there, we know that Agag was the Amalekite king that Saul failed to put to death when the Lord commanded him to do so. And it was that failure that God, it was at that failure that God turned away from Saul and declared that he would give his kingdom to somebody better. And now, an Agagite, somebody descended from Agag, is Ahasuerus' second in command. Well, things are about to get worse. Ahasuerus commands that everyone should honor Haman and bow down to him. And Mordecai refuses to bow down or show any honor. Now, the law forbids bowing down to idols made with hands. The law of Moses forbids bowing down to idols made with hands, but there's no law against bowing down to people. I mean, in Japan, we do this all, they do this all the time, right? This, this is not a problem for, for uh, the law of Moses. Certainly, Mordecai would have bowed down, again, uh, bowed down to Ahasuerus, the king, as a royal courtier, right? But the king's counselor, Haman, is beneath his dignity. He won't bow down to him. Now, the other servants of the king come to Mordecai and ask him, why are you transgressing the command of the king? Now, did you catch that? They aren't asking why Mordecai doesn't like Haman or what he has against him. Their question is, why are you transgressing the king's commandment, Ahasuerus' commandment? What matters to them is Mordecai is rebelling against the king. And to make matters worse, when they press him for a reason for his insurrection, the only reason he gives is that he is a Jew. Now, even worse than failing to witness, Mordecai has become a negative witness because he's, he is acting out of a national pride. I'm a Jew. I'm not bowing down to that guy. This is kind of like someone asking you why you never even tap the brakes when you come to a stop sign, and you answer, well, it's because I'm a Christian. Well, that's odd. Is there something about stopping at intersections that would be a violation of your religion? Not really. Oh. Well, I guess Christians just don't care about traffic laws, do they? In the same way, the servants ask Haman, is there some provision for Jews that they're exempt from the king's command? They want to see whether Mordecai's word will stand, as, as you read in that section. Well, no, there's no such provision. And now Haman notices the slight, and he's furious. If all Jews are like Mordecai, then the only solution he sees is to kill them all. 
Haman brings his accusation before the king. Just as Esther did not reveal that she was a Jew, Haman is not going to reveal that it is the Jews that he seeks to destroy. Listen to how he describes the people of the Jews to the king, and judge for yourself whether he is lying about any of it. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every, those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So what do you think? Well, I think it's all true. The Jews are scattered. They are scattered throughout the empire. They've been prosperous, and they've multiplied, even in exile. They do have laws that are different from every other people because they keep the law of Moses given by Yahweh. And Mordecai has just made himself a case in point that they do not keep the king's laws if it does not suit them. If Mordecai, the man, the Jew, doesn't keep the king's law, then which Jew will? And Haman is an accuser here, and you should note that. He's a Satan, which means accuser. He's a Satan in the court of the king. Just as Satan accused the brethren of sins of which they are actually guilty, Haman holds the sin of God's people up in the court of the king. Now the king gives Haman, the accuser, permission to deal with this unnamed people, however he sees fit. And Haman loses no time in issuing an, an edict, a decree that on the single day in the twelfth month, all the Jews throughout the empire are to be slaughtered. Haman's edict is issued on the day before Passover. Just when the Jews ought to be beginning their celebration of God's deliverance, they're thrown into mourning, in need of deliverance again, not only from slavery this time, but now from death and destruction. When Mordecai hears the edict, he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes in mourning. Now, tearing your clothes, think of it, tearing your clothes, it's like rending the spirit from your body. Sackcloth is like burial cloth. And because the curse on Adam is to return to the dust from which he came, putting dust on your ashes is like showing yourself as dead. All these things show yourself visibly as dead. And Mordecai tells Esther of the decree, the edict against the Jews, and now his command has changed. Reading in Esther 4, Mordecai also gave Esther's servant a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Before, Mordecai said, hide your people. Now he knows Esther must identify with her people if they are to be saved. And then Mordecai shows a changed heart when he says, who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? I don't, says Mordecai. And this is an acknowledgment, an acknowledgment that there is a greater plan to, Mordecai, uh, to Esther's becoming queen than all of Mordecai's political maneuvering. Mordecai can maneuver her into this position, but somebody else is directing these events. 
Who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? When Esther finally agrees to go to the, before the king, that is death to her as well. She can be executed for entering the king's presence unsummoned. But as she says, if I perish, I perish. As she prepares to go to the king, Esther commands Mordecai now, now is Esther giving the command, that all the Jews of the capital go even more into death. They are to fast for three days on her behalf and not even to drink water. How do we know that the author intends us to see that Mordecai and the Jews are repentant? Well, Esther asks that they fast on her behalf, and that's, that's the key. It does no good to fast on someone's behalf unless there is a God to see you fasting. There's no biblical equivalent for our modern-day notion of sending thoughts and positive vibes your way. These fast, this fasting is not sending positive vibes. If they're fasting on Esther's behalf, it can only mean that they are praying and crying out to God for mercy. And there are some striking parallels between the Jews here and the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. You remember when God threatened disaster on Nineveh, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The king of Nineveh commanded the city to fast from food and water and mourn and sackcloth and ashes. And he said, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I mean, you, you can catch some of the, the connections there, even linguistically. Who knows? Maybe he will turn so that we will not perish. If they show themselves as already dead, perhaps, perhaps God will accept that instead of the disaster he has prepared for them. Now, as soon as the Jews go into this symbolic death, showing themselves dead, things begin to change. Their fast is for three days. Did, I hope you noticed that. Three days, which biblical, biblically speaking, that is the proper length of time to be dead if you are about to rise again, isn't it? When Esther goes before the king, he looks on her with favor and offers to grant her wish before she even asks it up to half the kingdom. And so she invites him to a banquet which will be a more comfortable setting to present her case to him. And at this banquet, Ahasuerus again offers to grant her request but she keeps him in suspense and invites him and Haman to yet another banquet the next day. And this brings us to the turning point in the book of Esther. It's the hinge on which the whole book turns. I don't know what Esther put in the soup that she gave to her husband at that banquet, but whatever it was, he couldn't sleep that night. So what does he do? Well, of course, he has the book of memorials brought out to be read. That'll put him to sleep if nothing else will. And as the book is read, it's droning on, suddenly the king wakes up and says, wait, what, what is that? And he's reminded that, about the deed of Mordecai, who saved his life from assassination. And it's interesting and important that the book is called the Book of Memorials, the Book of the Memorials. That's the same word used of the memorial offerings and the furnishings in the temple that Yahweh established to remind himself continually of his promises to Israel. 
We read in Exodus 20, 28 about the breastplate of the high king. So Aaron, a high priest, sorry. So Aaron will bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. And when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The breastplate is a reminder to Yahweh of God's people. When Aaron goes into the temple, God sees the stones and the breastplate and says, I remember my people. Not that Yahweh forgets, but these are the memorials that he's instituted to remind himself visibly. It's as if the author really wants to talk about how God is faithful to his promises when his people repent and turn to him. But he holds back. Remember, he's not going to mention God because that's the framework that he set out for himself in this book. And he gives us only a hint instead to stay within that framework. And so, following the clues our author has given us, we should notice that just as the book of Memorials is reminding Ahasuerus of Mordecai's deed, the cry of Yahweh's people has come before Yahweh and reminded him of his promises, and he is about to work a mighty deliverance. Now, Hasverus is appalled that nothing was done to reward, reward Mordecai, so he asks Haman, well, what would be a fitting honor for someone who has pleased the king? And Haman, of course, thinks that the king means to honor him, and he recommends a dazzling display of royal honors, the royal robes marching through the street on the king's horse. And he's dismayed when these honors turn out to be intended for Mordecai. Now, the second banquet, the next day, Esther finally reveals her identity. Esther is finally a witness before the king of her people and her family. She declares herself a daughter of the Jews, one of the people that Haman has plotted to destroy. And so that Satan, Haman, is defeated and mounted on the very spike he had prepared for Mordecai the Jew. And as soon as Esther makes known that Mordecai is her cousin, she tells the king that Mordecai is her cousin, guess who Ahasuerus makes chief counselor? Well, Mordecai, of course. Things could have been easier if that had happened sooner. As, as Esther 8 tells us, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now the king has a good counselor. Mordecai issues a decree to counter Haman's, calling on the Jews to defend themselves and to make war against those who hated the Jews so much that they were committed to carrying out Haman's order even after a second counter order is sent out. The Jews carry the day and they win the battle. For indeed, all of the provincial governors and the rulers seeing that Ahasuerus clearly favors the Jews, joined with them in fighting Haman's army. But we should also notice that the Gentile peoples throughout the empire didn't just help the Jews in battle, but there is a mass influx 
of peoples of the Persian Empire that join the Jewish nation and identify as God's priestly people. Again, from Esther chapter 8, in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. When you hide your witness, God may bring trial and even disaster upon you to bring you to repentance and faithfulness. But when you have a faithful witness, God uses that witness to subdue the nations. This is the lesson that Mordecai had to learn. God's pattern is not for his people to secretly run the world from behind the scenes, but we're to be an open witness of his salvation and work, leading the world to the worship of him. Only when Mordecai learns this can he really be the man of Judah. Only then can he rightly be called the man, the Judean. As I mentioned earlier, the introduction of Mordecai is one of only two places in the scripture where we find the emphatic phrase, a man, a Judean. Well, the other is in Zechariah chapter 8, written in the fourth year of Darius of Persia. Reading from Zechariah 8, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a man, a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. 10 men of every nation, of every language, will flock to a man, a Judean. They will grab hold of his, the hem of his robe and beg him, let us go with you. We've heard that God is with you. Now, isn't that exactly what we want the people of the nations to say to us? Christian, let us go with you. Christ Church of Livingston County, let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. And so, what about that job where keeping your Christian identity unmentioned might get you a promotion? Or public office, we're not talking about what God thinks about abortion or gender identity or sexual purity might help you avoid some sticky, sticky questions or ridicule. When it becomes more convenient or seemingly advantageous to conceal who we are, to just not mention it, not mention that we bear the name of Jesus Christ, we must remember God's pattern, witness is the way to dominion. We must learn from Mordecai and take to heart the lesson that he learned. God's way of granting his people influence and dominion in the world is by means of witness. This has always been the way throughout the scripture. Joseph was a faithful witness in Egypt and was raised to the right hand of Pharaoh. Daniel, the faithful witness of the exile, was raised to the right hand of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. The apostles stood before governors and kings, and even Herod Agrippa said to Paul, you're about to persuade me to be a Christian. The pattern continues in history as the church carries out the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. The martyrs of the church faithfully, witness, faithfully witnessing, even to death, led to the establishment of Christendom. The faithful witnessing of missionaries to Europe 
in Africa and Asia and America, led whole nations to the worship of Jesus. And as, this, as we've just celebrated the birth of this nation, we might remember that Christian witness built the United States and faithful witness is what is needed to sustain it. Above all, Jesus Christ is the great witness, the one who is the revelation of God, the Father to us. And after suffering death and being raised again, he was seated at the right hand of the great king and given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has seated us as well in those heavenly places and called us to be his witnesses. Now, in this worship service even, we, we stand before the throne of the great king, and it's our privilege to petition him regarding the matters of rule. We pray for our rulers because they must submit to the great ruler. And as the church is a faithful witness in the world, our God is pleased to grant the church more and more dominion, even with our earth, earthly rulers as they turn to us and say, let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises to us, which are new every day. We give thanks for how you have faithfully worked to save your people, purifying and refining them as gold. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us for the work of witness, we pray, that we might be courageous and bold to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Draw the nations to your Son, that they might believe and receive your deliverance. All this we ask in the name of Jesus our Savior. Today we heard how when the Book of Memorials was read, the thing Mordecai had done was brought to the king's remembrance. And we saw that this shows that God also remembered his people and heard their cry and would show himself strong to save. Well, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus has also instituted for us a memorial, a memorial more sure than the Persian Chronicles, which are now lost to history, or even more, more sure even than the temple offerings, which are shadows and have passed away. He has given us this meal as a sign and a seal of his body and blood to show to the Father the tokens of his once for all sacrifice. When we partake, we are reminded of Christ's life and death, but also we display the signs before our heavenly Father who accepts and embraces us for the sake of his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And so, as we heard at the beginning of this service, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, for our God has worked deliverance for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is for those who are baptized and who are under the authority of Christ and his church, the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, for all things are now ready. Let us receive Christ and rest on him alone for our salvation today. Our Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was delivered up, took bread and blessed. The body of Christ given for you.
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.